I'm really looking forward to this, though. Uh, we're going to talk about Afghanistan and how it fits into Canada's foreign policy. We had a discussion earlier this week about how foreign policy rarely, rarely rises to the level of discussion in an election campaign. And now, perhaps more than ever, it should be something that all Canadians are keeping an eye on. Take a look at Afghanistan. It is a shining example of the United States changing posture on the world stage, right? They used to be, we called them the world's police force. They were the undeniable superpower, and they sort of dictated what happened in a lot of places around the world. Clearly, they've taken a change in stance. They're not interested in that anymore, not as much as they used to be. They're more focused on their internal issues. That has a ripple effect around the world, and it will affect us greatly. So, um... Dr. Lloyd Agsworthy, a name that is familiar to a number of you, I'm sure, um, a longtime figure on the Canadian political scene, Federal Minister of Foreign Affairs from 1996 to 2000. He's the chair of the World Refugee and Migration Council, joining us now to talk about a piece he recently was part of discussing this very issue. Uh, Mr. Axworthy, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Oh, nice to be on your show, Shane. Um, yeah, I guess let's just talk about how, I mean... We can talk about Afghanistan and how it's really an undeniable example of the United States changing their posture in terms of where they fit into the world stage. Um, but, but there's been others, right? This is a, something that we've seen a trend towards in recent times. Well, you're right. I think that uh, the latest decision on Afghanistan just brings the point home that uh, the United States is increasingly... Uh, disinterested in uh, being a kind of major player and uh, architect of international uh, peace and order. And it uh, it puts the onus in other countries, including Canada, because uh, we have such a stake in what happens around the world. I think that's one of the uh, issues that, as you know, some of us wrote about a piece saying uh, an election campaign should be a time where at least there is uh, effort to uh, put on uh, the public uh, radar uh, what kind of proposals and policies and directions that the different uh, parties would like to see to help Canada sort of reassess and reimagine uh, the role we play, particularly because we can't rely on uh, the United States anymore to be the sort of backbone of all this. But the onus is going to be in other countries, and that's why. Uh, there's two weeks left in the campaign, and we hope that uh, it might spark some, at least uh, a period of discussion as to what the options are from the point of view of the different uh, uh, political parties. You know, you were foreign affairs minister for a number of years, um, and you're right. Foreign affairs, when you talk about a U.S. election campaign, it's top of mind. It's one of the main things they talk about. It's a debate topic over and over. It rarely right. enters the conversation in a Canadian election campaign. Why is that? Is it because Canadians don't care, or is it a political stance? Why is it never a topic of discussion during an election campaign in our country? Well, I think part of the problem is that there's a kind of built-in uh, sort of bubble <laughs> in terms of the Ottawa system, uh, which is very much dominated by sort of uh, lobbyists, very much dominated by fairly sort of uh, uh, public uh, officials who are risk-averse. They don't want to get out in front of the skis too much on issues. Mm -hmm. And yet, uh, you're you're doing your program this morning on the impact of COVID. It's very clear that if there isn't a much better and more effective way of sharing distributions of vaccines with other countries, yes. but that's going to come back and bite us. 
uh, because it will simply provide a, a breeding ground for new variants, and that there'll be in a world that's so interconnected. There's going to be people from coming from other countries who will bring uh, sort of uh, infections with them, and we'll do the same. So uh, there is an issue, uh, and let me. You know, just say the second one is you have the United Nations say that we're now into a red zone when it comes to climate. And that all the disruptions we're seeing in terms of our own country and around the world with floods and droughts and uh, sort of major hurricanes and things of that kind can increasingly be uh, attributed to the impact that uh, rising climate has. And again, that's something that Canada has a big stake because we have a lot of geography and we have a lot of climate. Where does the onus lie? Is it on the Canadian voter to make this a bigger issue or is it on the politicians? I think politicians will respond to what they think matters to the voter. So does it have to be something that us as Canadians are pushing and demanding some sort of policy around? Uh, you know, I, I think that there, there's a kind of blockage uh, in, in the sort of perceptions of that place. I, I, I want to go back to when we did uh, things like the Treaty on Banning Landmines. Uh, we were doing a polling around that period of time, and it was by far the most popular and supportive policy that uh, the Canadians expressed their views on, that uh, they thought they really liked the idea of Canada being engaged, of doing its part, and of being a serious player on the international stage. But I just think there's a kind of a, a system that, whether it's in the sort of Ottawa-based media or whether it's a combined wisdom, a sort of what I used to call the junior G-men, who, who kind of become the, the gurus of politics, but they don't really understand what's going on in the rest of the world. Uh, and so I, I think that there's a, a combination, but there's no doubt in my mind that a lot of Canadians, I'm not saying everyone, but a lot of Canadians really think that particularly as, as we've become enmeshed or integrated more uh, with, a, with global systems of trade and economics and energy and climate and epidemics and conflict, and I mean, you know, the list goes on, uh, that we better be... Uh, a, 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 not just relying upon American leadership. We have to assume some of that because they're simply not going to be there anymore. Well, and I think that is the key point. I think for us as Canadians, and tell me if I'm wrong, um, we have really benefited from being, you know, the closest ally and the closest neighbor to the global superpower. And we've kind of just taken for granted the fact that they're going to run the show and we're going to benefit from that. And now if they've changed their stance, it really requires us to be more engaged in this. Look, at, I mean, that's the axiom right there. I mean, we, we did have a luxury for a long time of being in a kind of a sweet spot where we were next to this very powerful country. We shared a lot of values. Well, I don't think we share those anymore. You look at the public opinion polls, uh, you know, the divisiveness in the United States and the polarization uh, is becoming really extreme. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, we see signs of that in Canada. It's not nearly the same, and that's I think because you know our our political party system uh, works quite differently. It doesn't have that those same kind of uh, sort of uh, wedge issues that becomes the stock and trade of politics in the United States. Uh, but but it does mean that uh, it, it, let me put this in perspective. Uh, we're a G seven country. Uh, we have one of the most prosperous societies in the world. We've got highly skilled populations. We've got 
uh, a good foreign uh, service uh, system uh, spread around the world. We, we have to be activating that and being proactive, not just reactive. And that simply means, I think we used in our, it does going to take some imagination. And that's what we're calling for is to see where are the imaginative yeah. uh, next step points for Canada to take that, uh, that Canadians should have an opportunity to opine on as a result of the election going on. Now, understanding our place in, in the world and, you know, in our, our relative size, uh, we're never going to be the United States. We're never going to replace them. So um, if the United States has retreated and it's a new reality out there, how does Canada exert their influence? Is it by forming other alliances and bringing more countries uh, into the fold? What's the strategy? Well, I think, I think part of it, I think you know, we, we've always, I mean, going back to 1945 and Mike Pearson, I think the calculation was our best interests are served if we do it as part of a collegial collaborative effort uh, with other governments and with other players. Uh, and here's, here's a, where I think there is a turning point. But what the Afghan uh, debacle is showing is that you cannot manage these issues from a military perspective. I mean, the idea that you can go in, invade, set up your kind of uh, reformed tactics, it's going to take a, a much more subtle and I think a much more creative mm -hmm. issue, what I used to call when I was in Florida, soft power. You, you have to change people's attitudes. You have to have a different narrative. You have to provide a lot more employment. You have to deal with issues of epidemic. And I think we're, we're good at believing. Canada has a very strong convening power. People respect us. Yes. And we should be using that convening power. And I don't mean to say that to create brand new uh, kind of architectural monuments. But uh, in today's world, uh, the collegiality is one that can be shifted in focus. Uh, if you if you allow me through the Migration Rights Refugee Council, we're working now with a number of partners in the United States, Mexico, and Central America to come to grips with the border migration issues because it affects all of us. I mean, Canada imports two or three hundred thousand workers from Central America every year. It's crucial to our agricultural economy, and yet the system is breaking down. Uh, because everybody's trying to do their own thing. The Americans will do this, we do that, and we're trying to say this has got to be a regional collaborative effort. And that's, I think, the, the kind of convening power that I, I would like to see more of, and I'd like to hear what the parties now. I, I think people know that I'm a, a liberal and have been, and I think that uh, it's always been a party that's had those kinds of directions. But I think uh, it's incumbent on all the parties uh, to come forward with uh, at least... Uh, a form of dialogue or discussion about what they think the priorities uh, internationally should be and how they think we have to uh, devote resources and time and effort uh, diplomatically and socially and others uh, to help uh, support the change. Because otherwise, you know, we've got countries like China and Russia sure. uh, and Brazil run by authoritarian leaders and they are out to change the whole world system to be in, in their uh, reflection, as opposed to what we've tried to build, which is a more democratic and liberal-minded order uh, for the country. Uh, Dr. Axworthy, thank you so much for your time today. Great discussion. I really appreciate you joining us. Okay. Enjoy it as well. Thank you very much. That is Lloyd Axworthy, a name known to 
all of you of a certain generation, that's for sure. He was a Minister of Foreign Affairs from 1996 to 2000, involved in government for a very, very long time.